Thank you so much that there is something that you have for us uh, that actually changes lives. Uh, there's something that is in your word that is so countercultural and so different from what we expect and something so different than even what we might have experienced regardless of our religious upbringing, regardless of what uh, we might assume is true about ourselves or about you, that you want to speak and cut through the noise. So, Father, I ask that you would be just speaking to us. God, would you open our hearts to hear exactly what we need to hear this morning? Uh, Holy Spirit, would you be present? Uh, would anything that uh, is not of you just go away? And everything that is of you uh, be accentuated by your presence. And so we ask this in your name. Amen. All right. Well, my name is Kurt, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad that you're here this morning. Uh, we are excited to continue in our series called On Mission, looking at our new mission statement of empowering all people to love and follow Jesus. Uh, and the reason we're doing this for these next weeks as we're walking through the month of October is because this phrase is so important that we all understand what these little words mean. It can feel like it's a very simple uh, statement, but actually all the words are very carefully chosen. Uh, and we want all of us to kind of align together around this because not only will this phrase become the defining why for our community, but it really will become the thing that we want to run after together as we look forward to the future and dream new dreams and pioneer new paths as we see what God is doing and the vision that he has to build this church. And so uh, there's an online study guide, actually, if you go to existencechurch.com slash info, uh, that we've created. It's going to help you even take this beyond Sunday, to go on your own to engage uh, either with a friend or in your life group or just in your own uh, time with the Lord or on a date night to really spice things up if you know what to do. Just, you know, husbands, you'll seem extra spiritual. Your wife will appreciate it. Uh, you could do this. Uh, you could go to existencechurch.com slash info to access that. We'd love to engage that uh, with you in your hands so that you can walk through uh, these four sections, really, really uh, important sections together. Last week, we looked at the word empowering. Uh, and if you weren't here, I would encourage you to uh, check out our live stream page and watch that because it's very, very important that we, like I said, we all come around this together. And today, we're looking at the phrase, all people, all people, and why this is such an important phrase and actually a non-negotiable phrase for any community that's trying to follow after the person of Jesus. Why this, these, this collection of words has such dramatic impact that no two words that we could probably put together can actually impact our lives on a regular basis more than this phrase, all people. And as we look at it today, we have to begin with two truths. First is that we have a tendency. You have a tendency. I probably have a tendency. Certainly our culture has a tendency of categorizing groups of people that actually removes the humanity and removes the dignity out of them when we put them in groups because we assume that they're all the same. Right, everybody from Southern California is this way. Everybody that voted for this person is this way. Everybody that looks this way is this way. And actually, it's so important that we re-implant re the dignity and the humanity in this conversation. And the second thing that's so important is that when we say all people, it includes you and it includes me. That you're a person. I'm a person. And as we look at this concept together in the Bible today, it's so important that you and I are included in this conversation. Because my guess is, for many of you, it certainly has been true for me, some of the most healing and transformative and important moments of my life came at the impetus in the hands of other people, and the most hurtful and painful and challenging truths of my story and parts of my story and parts of yours also 
involved people. And yet, no matter what your life has been like, no matter what the journey you've been on, no matter how hurt you even have been in the past, there's something in all of us that craves a connection with someone else. Even when we know it might not be good for us, even when we have all the reasons that we could possibly muster to say, no, I can do it on my own, I'm fine. The reality is all of us have this God-ordained longing because it's how you were created to be connected to other people, that people matter to you, people matter to me, and you are a person that matters. That's actually so important that we begin this conversation understanding that because what's true about you and true about me is this. All people need people. You need people. I need people. Your kids need people. Your boss needs people. Your neighbor that drives you crazy, she needs people. Some of you, the best parts of your life came because someone else helped encourage you away from something destructive or said, hey, you should do this instead. I need my wife all the time to help me with fashion choices and other things. But especially that is not good for men to be alone, right? There's all these things in our life where we lean on the wisdom and the input and the connection to other people. Your identity is often shaped by other people and what they say is true about you. If your parents, as you were growing up, said, you're so smart, you grew up believing you're smart. And if they said, you're not so smart, you might have believed them as well. All people need people. And so the question that comes to mind as we engage with this conversation is that question that you got to share with some people around you when it comes to this idea of how do people play in the rules of our society and the rules of our life and the rules of our churches? So how many of you would say you're a rule keeper? You raise your hand. You're a rule keeper. Awesome. Secondborns, perhaps. Yep. How many of you are rule makers? Firstborns, where you at? Rule makers, right on. How many of you are rule breakers? Yes, we're glad you're here. We need you too. Right, so if you're a rule maker, you love to make the rules, uh, you just like to be in charge. I remember the refrain, refrain over and over and over again as a child. My mom is saying, Kurt, you're not the parent. Right, and now I say that same phrase to my daughter, right, who's the oldest in our family. She's three. I'm like, trust me, you don't want to sign up for this situation. Parenting is not just telling people what to do when it's appropriate and helpful for your situation, right? Some of you, you're rule keepers, you're rule followers. You just want to know, hey, tell me how to do it, and I'm going to do it. I want to know where I stand. I want to know what to do, how to accomplish it. I want to know how to win, perhaps. I'm a rule keeper. Others of you, you're rule breakers, and it's fine to tell you the rules because you want to know how you can ruffle people's feathers, right? And you're good with that. You're excited about that. But I think in our society, one of the best places to see this rule keeper, rule breaker, uh, idea at play is in the 15 items or less checkout land, lane in the, in the grocery store or the TSA security line at the airport, right? Those are the spaces where this idea of rule keeper or rule breaker or rule maker loves to show up. I remember we were traveling a couple years ago, this was before we had kids, uh, and we got to security. And, and some of you, uh, God bless you, you're just kind of casual. You show up to the airport plenty of time. You're not in a rush. You're like, whatever. Whatever line the river takes me, I'll be fine. Going through, so we're all going to get there at the same time. Rules are made for everyone's benefit. Just float along. That's your kind of perspective. Uh, so glad. I'm not that way. I want to be in the airport in the absolute least amount of time possible uh, before I get on my plane. If they literally close the door and bump me inside, I'm happy. Uh, and so I'm always stressed and have to be very strategic when it comes to security line. And so I have this inner math that happens when I get to security. I take the number of young families with children, multiply that by the amount of people traveling with animals, 
and divide that by business travelers, and that's the line I pick. Whichever line has the best options, that's the one I go with. And in this particular case, I thought that I had picked the right line. And so the group's coming with me, and I had picked the wrong line. I didn't know this at the time. I would have made a different choice. But the guy, about three people in front of us, is getting rechecked because he forgot to take his belt off. Right? And then they pull his bag out, and he has a water bottle inside. I mean, this is amateur hour. Water bottle? Who does that? Come on, step up your game. This is security. So all of this stuff is starting to rage inside of me, and I'm getting frustrated. And I'm amazed at the words that are beginning to form in my head and the judgments that I have about a person I have never met, all because I want to get to my gate about three or four minutes earlier. Right? I want, I, I'm inconvenienced. And some of you are like, yeah, just get TSA pre-checked. It solves all the problems. Right? Some of you are nodding. You're like, well, you're the amateur hour. So yeah, so apparently that's true about me. Uh, but you have these moments right, where you have... A situation like that that frustrates you, and maybe even to your surprise, you never say it out loud, but something begins to rise up in you. Words or stories begin to form in your mind, maybe even out of your mouth, uh, maybe even as you're driving to church this morning and someone cuts you off and you're frustrated about their story, and I begin to write a story about them, then they turn into the volunteer parking lot directly in front of me. It's like, oh, cool, we're going to do this together, right? It's so amazing how fast something can happen. And we can be surprised at the judgments that show up inside of all of us. So here's the question I want us to wrestle with this morning. And you might never say this out loud, but I bet you you thought it. What do you do when someone's not as good as you? Yeah, I said it. I said it. What do you do when someone is not as good as you? We all have that wondering. Religious people love to ask that question. We all have ideas and pontifications about how we would answer that question. Maybe put it this way. What are the thoughts and feelings and stories that come up in your heart and in your mind when someone doesn't seem to play by your rules? Or maybe we ask, when we say the phrase, all people, who's the yeah, but in your mind? Like, who's the exception to all people for you? Because we all have them. We all have stories, we all have uh, lines that show up, we all have feelings or thoughts, and, and we can just call them judgments. You have them, I have them. We're people. We, this happens to all of us. And yet this question is the question that the religious leaders of Jesus' day were trying to solve, trying to answer. And I believe that this is a question that even to this day is a challenge for religious people to look at. And so I want us to look at uh, a passage of Scripture together where Jesus actually jumps head on into this moment Uh, where grace shows up in real time to answer that question of who is the exception for us when it comes to the idea of all people. So to do that, we're going to look to John chapter 8. If you want to grab uh, a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 8. If not, we got a blue Bible in the seat back pocket directly in front of you. It's on page 521 in the blue Bible. I'd love for you to turn there because as I read through it, we're going to pause and and give some commentary, but there's some phrases I want us to speak out together. And so uh, I'll pause and say, what does that say? And that's your actually say out loud what's on, uh, on the passage. And so just so you know, don't worry. This is not a test. It's, a, it's an open book, right? There's, it's on the screen. You really cannot fail. Okay. But I want us to read this together because I think there's something in here that's really, really, really important. And perhaps for you, if you are here and you're like, I'm not so sure about the Bible and I'm not so sure about what I believe about Jesus, I, I think you're going to really love this story. Uh, because it's going to show up something that might be uh, different from what you might have expected to hear this morning. Uh, There's no spooky stuff. There's no magic in this story. Uh, It's just the way Jesus responded to uh, an incredibly difficult situation. 
that I think is going to speak a lot of light into our lives. So John chapter 8, again, page 521 in the Blue Bible. Uh, Jesus has created kind of a mass following, right? He's, he's, he's healed people. He's done incredible things. And a lot of people are following him around. And the religious leaders are getting really nervous because they don't like uh, what he's saying. They don't like what's happening. And so they actually, as we're going to see in a moment, set a trap for him to try to ruin his reputation and crush the movement that was growing and that he was creating. And so pick this up in John chapter 8, verse 1. John, which is his best friend and eyewitness to this moment, and he writes this down for us. He says, verse 1, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. This was overnight. And then early in the morning he came again to the temple. And then what are the next three words? What does that say? All the people. Now, I'm sure this was John's commentary later. It's a little hyperbolic. Not everyone, because some people show up a little bit later in the story. But what John is reflecting back as he's writing down uh, his account of Jesus' life, he's like, man, there were all kinds of people there. That Jesus' crowd, his following, when he was teaching at the temple, it looked a little different than when other rabbis were teaching at the temple. See, Jesus had this tendency of he loved to hang out with people that had a bad reputation. And that began to give him a bad reputation. So John says, all the people came to him, and he sat down to teach them. And then in verse uh, 3, it says this, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elite, brought a woman who was caught in adultery. Some translations double down and say, in the very act, placing her in the midst of him, they say to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded that we stone such a person. What do you say? And you can just hear in their voice that they're testing him. Teacher... Like, it's that fake respect, right? Like, when your kid says, yes, Dad, like, you know exactly what they're actually saying. It's just, you know, you raised a good Christian boy or girl so they don't swear at you yet, right? So uh, that's what they're saying. They're literally pressing him into a corner. Because here's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get Jesus to answer one of two ways, and they think this is a brilliant plan. So the law of Moses says we should stone her. She, she was caught in the act, so if Jesus says, no, I'll give her a pass, he's soft on the law, and all the Jews in Jerusalem would stop following him because he clearly doesn't respect Moses, right, the person, the forefather of their faith. But if instead he goes, yeah, well, that's what, that is what it says, and I guess go ahead, then he would be in trouble with the occupying power of Rome because they had taken away the opportunity for the Jews to, you know, give their own executions, Right? Even Jesus' own crucifixion was uh, done by the Romans. So he's in this tough spot, and the religious leaders of the day think they got him. Have you ever had that moment where you think you have the perfect plan? It's only A or B, and either way is good for me. And then they choose C, and you're like, dang it, I didn't see that coming. Right? And these people should have known that Jesus always finds another way. Right? But check this out. They, command, they, they said Moses commanded that we should stone such a woman, so what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have a charge to bring against him. And I love what Jesus does. So Jesus bends down and writes with his finger in the sand. Like, he just doesn't pay attention. So the next time you're in a heated argument with your spouse, or the next time it's getting a little crazy at work, just like OG etch a sketch and just kind of like go down here and just kind of hang out. Just distance yourself from the drama. I mean, there's a whole message in that. That's not what we're talking about today, but that's a good idea, right? And Jesus just removes himself, and they get so frustrated. They're like, come on. They continue to ask him, Jesus, answer the question. Like, come on. We've worked all this morning for all this stuff, right? Because what most likely had happened, like, think about this. How did they know where this woman would be committing adultery? 
Like, it's early in the morning. Like, we're Southern California. Like, it's hard for us to get here at 9 o'clock. This was like dawn, which is, for those of you that don't have young kids, this is when the sun first comes up. You haven't seen it in a while. You're, you're blessed because of it, right? And don't go back, right? Stay where you are. It's a wonderful space. But dawn is when, like, the sun rises. And maybe you do that on vacation in Hawaii because it's beautiful. But this was going to church at a sunrise service. And they bring this woman in, probably only wrapped in the sheet she was lying in just moments before. And they toss her into the center of the religious capital of the city of Jerusalem where Jesus is teaching alone perhaps naked, embarrassed, and ashamed, and they don't care about her. She's just a prop. They don't care that they're humiliating her because all they want to do is try to humiliate Jesus. And so when he doesn't even play along and he's riding in the sand, they get so frustrated because they had probably plotted and planned this for a while. In fact, most scholars believe they had actually paid off or colluded with the male that she was with. And so when they say, hey, in the law of Moses, it says that you should stone her, most likely they walked up that morning with stones in their hand. They were probably ready for what they thought the outcome was, which would ultimately end in her death and Jesus' arrest by the Roman guards. They didn't care. They didn't care what it took. They just wanted to take out Jesus. And if she was collateral, well, so be it. See, in the law of Moses that they were quoting, the thing they forgot was is that there was some fine print. In the law of Moses, when it says you can actually stone someone, it says that two people are required to be there as well as some witnesses. Because, see, it takes two to tango. That's a whole other sermon series. We'll get to that in February. But there were two people involved but they only bring the woman. See, this is not new. We see it in our culture still to this day. Women take the fall for actions that involve two people. And so these religious leaders, most likely, you think they were just on their prayer walk in the morning? Lord, I'm so grateful for this day. Oh, Lord, what's happening in that room? Let's go figure this out. I'm sure that wasn't what happened. I'm sure they knew exactly where to go. And isn't that like religion? Knowing exactly what to do to find you in your worst moment? knowing exactly where to look, putting effort and energy to find what you don't want them to see so that they can feel better about themselves. So Jesus is riding in the sand, and they're on the edge, demanding an answer, holding their stones, saying, Jesus, answer the question. The reason we know stones are in their hand is because of what Jesus says next. So Jesus gets up. This is so powerful. He stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. I said, okay. I won't, I won't mess with the fact that you, you know, incorrectly quoted scripture. We'll just go with that for a second. But I'm going to get to the deeper thing because your self-righteousness is actually self-sabotage. And I have you right where I want you. And I want to point out something that you've allegedly forgotten in your own story about the number of sins that they most likely committed to get to the place where they would catch her in one. And they said, all right, fine. Those stones you got? If you're sinless, go ahead. In that moment, who was the only person that actually had the right to cast the first stone. It was him. It was Jesus. He was the only person to get to that point or get through life as a whole without 
going against what God says without looking for love anywhere besides God, without disobeying God's law. And he says, if you got a stone, go for it. If you have no sin, you can throw it. And then he gets right back down and begins writing in the dust. These scholars have thought for years and years and years to try to figure out what Jesus was writing. Some people think he was simply doodling, taking the attention off of this woman as an act of dignity and humanity. Some people thought he was writing out the Ten Commandments. And the longer he went, the more and more nervous the Pharisees and the scribes got because they had memorized those things, but they had applied a few of them. Some people think he was writing their names, starting with the oldest, perhaps, and writing out their sins. I don't know how long he was down there. It ultimately doesn't really matter because he just gets back down, puts himself at the same level as this woman caught in her shame because Jesus knows something, that proximity changes your perspective. So when it comes to all people in your life, proximity will change your perspective. And so Jesus says one line. And in this one line, he does something extraordinary. He flips the script. He changes the mood in the moment of that encounter. Because you have to believe that this woman, when she was being dragged to the temple courts, she was anticipating her own condemnation and execution. She was just waiting for a stone to hit her in the head because she saw him in their hands. And Jesus gets back down on the ground and starts doodling again. And John, an eyewitness, says that they all began to go away, one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. See, there was a sound that probably echoed throughout the city that morning. And it wasn't the sound that people expected. There was a sound that actually gave a deafening, defiant blow to eternity as a woman was laying on the ground and people began to listen to what Jesus said in the sound of rocks, one by one, falling throughout the city. you it woke some people up and John gives us this little detail and says the people left starting with the oldest and I think it's because there's something that happens is a gift that God offers us with age and that's humility you don't have to take it some people double down but the opportunity to say hey the longer I've lived my life the more and more I realize that I don't have it all figured out the more and more I know that I actually have no space to cast judgment, and as the rocks began to fall, Jesus gets back down. And I wondered if she was gonna, I wondered if she thought he was gonna pick one up. You ever thought about that? Like, we know the end of the story, perhaps you've read it, but she didn't. She's stuck there in her shame, probably closing, gripping tight to the ground, closing her eyes, just waiting for the end. And she hears this phrase, woman, where are they? Where are they? Where are the self-righteous religious leaders who dragged you here? Where are they? She says, nowhere, sir, nowhere, Lord. Where are they that condemn you? No one. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you? Go and sin no more. 
Then the Bible says Jesus spoke again to them. So there were other people watching this happen. There were still people there. They just weren't the ones that had dragged her into the center. And then most likely these were his followers, his disciples, including John, who later writes this down. And Jesus looks up and says this. As Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will no longer walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, in this this one sentence, Jesus does three powerful things when he speaks to this woman. When he says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. He does three extraordinarily powerful things. He says, look, I'm not soft on sin. That's the first thing he says. He doesn't say, hey, I know it was weird. They broke into your house, and, and it was clearly a setup from the giddy-up, and so, you know, it's fine. No, he doesn't give her a passing. You're probably in a loveless marriage, and so I understand. You got to do what you got to do. Take care of your own. He doesn't say that. He acknowledges that there was a habitual pattern of sin in this woman's life, just like he knows there's sin in mine and there's sin in yours. See, God doesn't turn a blind eye to my sin, and he doesn't turn a blind eye to yours. But what he was trying to show his followers was that there was something even better than condemnation. So he says sin matters. He invites her out of that life. But he also invites her into a bigger and better story, one that is a transformed life, a new life. And we don't know if she took him up on it. It always frustrates me when Bible stories leave like an open-ended story. Like, well, did she follow him? Like, did she change the world? Did she go back to her old ways? I don't know. And I don't know if it actually matters. Because what matters is what Jesus points us to is the edict that God wants us to follow. That This is the ethic that he says matters is that so often we can get off course thinking we know what needs to happen. And phrases can emerge in our language that have nothing to do with the heart of God. Phrases like love the sinner, hate the sin. That's nowhere in the Bible. But it's on all kinds of bumper stickers. Maybe you have one. What's in the Bible, as we see in the life of Jesus, is protect sinners, advocate for them, align with them, eat with them, consider your own sin, and drop your stone. That's what we see in Scripture. That's what we see in the life of Jesus. And that when Jesus invites this woman into a new life and reminds her and his followers that he's actually the light of the world, he shows us that there are two groups of people. There really are. There are two groups of people in the world, and you're in one of those two groups, maybe both. But it's not sinners and saints, as you may have heard. It's sinners who know they need grace and are willing to admit that they need help, and sinners who continue to deny and try to do it on their own. And I, at times, can live in both of those groups. And so when he, when he says this next line that he's the light of the world, he understands that there are things in your, in your life and mine that want to keep us out of coming into the light with God. Like perhaps just like this woman, the reason that you're so afraid of coming into the light and coming clean with God is because you're afraid of this. You're afraid that God's response to you because of your life and the choices you've made or the things that someone did to you or what it is that you don't understand. You're afraid that if you come to God and you come into the light, this is what will meet you. Condemnation, judgment, 
the end. There are moments in my life where I so desperately want to stay out of the light because I don't want to face what I know is true about me. I don't know what God's going to do. I don't remember moments like this where the Bible says, you want to know what God is like? Look to Jesus. And yet when you and I can align our lives, align ourselves with that woman caught and stuck in her shame, and we see how God interacts with her, see what Jesus does in the moment when he could have done anything, and what he chose to do was risky and dangerous because they could have stoned him. It says, no, I'm going to be here to protect you. I'm going to be here to defend you. I'm not going to lie to you and say it's no big deal. I want more for you. There's a better story. There's more humanity still there. And when we begin to live our life the way Jesus treated this woman, not only does it restore the humanity of other people, it restores your humanity as well. It restores mine as well. I no longer treat people like a product or a category. I remember that there's humanity there. And most importantly, I remember that condemnation is not present in the presence of Jesus. Condemnation is not present in the presence of Jesus. There's no room for it. Grace is too overwhelming. Love is too reckless. His forgiveness is too widespread. There's actually no room left for my condemnation, my self-righteousness, or my judgment of another. That the Apostle Paul would write later in Romans that, that there is now for no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus in relationship with him and in his presence, which means there's no condemnation for those that are in our presence, that there's no room for it. If we are the body of Christ and there's no condemnation in the presence of Jesus, then there is to be no condemnation around us. This is so challenging because I got my list. And I got people that make it, and I got people that aren't on my list. I got people that I love to step in and defend, and I got people that I love to stand idly by and watch society rip apart. So the question is, which one are you? Which one am I? Are you a sinner who loves to admit that you need grace? Is it easy for you? Or are you one that loves to distract yourself and distract other people perhaps by pointing out their flaws so that you don't have to look inward? Which one am I? At times, both. And so who is it for you? Who's the exception to all people? When we say that phrase, who's the exception in your mind? Is it your coworkers? Like, really, like people that are within 30 feet of you when you go to work tomorrow. Would they know it? Would they know that they're important to you? Is it your boss or your college buddies? How have you shown them? Is it your family? Sometimes the people that are closest to us, that know us the best, can be the hardest to love. Is it Democrats? Is it Republicans? Like in the jokes you tell and what you post on Facebook? Like do you tell half the country you're out because of how you vote? Because what you think about gun control or what you think about taxes or education? Are they invited? Are they included? 
What about black people? What about white people? What about Latino people or Asian people or Middle Eastern people? Do they make it? Are they included? Do you know any? Like legitimately, like do you know any? Have they been to your home? What about rich people? Are rich people included? Or do you secretly judge their motives and their character because you're jealous of what they have? What about poor people? Do you secretly think they deserve it? Have you ever taken the time to examine your privilege? Or have you just let it cause blindness in your life? Like, who's the exception? What about undocumented workers? Refugees? What about unmarried parents? People that made a different choice than you did. Are they included in all people? Are they, are they included in my life? What about people with a different sexual orientation or gender identity than you? What does God think about them? So what I appreciate about this story in John 8 is that this was a clear, clear situation of habitual sin. And so anything less than that, we can easily assume is included in how God responds to those kinds of people. So are they just people? Or do you have categories that you can dismiss with stories you tell or jokes you make that actually speak much louder about who I really am, what I really feel than my pious church answers? What about you? Like when we say all people, does that include you? Really? Or is there something in your mind that's like, no, it's me, but. Me, kind of. Me, except. Like, can you bring your true self to Jesus? Or if you're honest, you're afraid of this. You're afraid of this. And so you keep stories quiet. You keep it on the surface. You say, I'll just, I've just always been this way. It's just who I am. And the, the sad part is, is there are way too many churches that have build, been built with these stones. Maybe you've been to some of them. I was raised in one. Built on the basis of bias that says if you don't believe like we do or look like we do or talk like we do, that's fine, but you don't belong here. Some that outright theologically and sometimes just socially said, these are the real people that God cares about and everybody else, sorry. It's not the kind of church we're going to build around here. It's not what God's up to. That existence church. We're going to be a church that's for all people. We're going to be a church that's about all people. We're going to be so inclusive and so radically pursuant of people that we actually don't have a demographic. Our demographic is you're breathing, we're coming for you. Not with this. With this. I was so excited because I wanted to figure out how to like explode a rock on stage today. 
to close out this message. I thought that would be so awesome and masculine. Um, and Weston's real nervous that that almost landed on his stuff. It didn't. You're good. I promise. But you know what actually crushes condemnation that's even more powerful than exploding a rock? It's confession. Confession crushes condemnation. And when we can get it right of what our job is in this whole situation when it comes to being the church and it comes to all people, and we can actually bring our judgments, walk into the light with Jesus as he is the light, and receive the light of life, it's when we confess that we got junk in us. I got it in me. A couple years ago, I heard this quote from the late Dr. Billy Graham, and it is really helpful to keep in order whose job is what. It says this, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job to love. And there are times, if I'm honest, I'm like, I think God's a little short-staffed today. I better help out the Holy Spirit, add some conviction, let people know, hey, this is this is what you need to know. It's what you need to do. And I always talk about it in that voice for some reason. I don't know, right? And I kind of want to jump into a spot that's not mine and abdicate the role that God has said is only mine to play. Because when you step into the role of convictor or the role of judge, you leave the role of someone who loves other people, which is the only thing you and I are called and able to do on this planet. So when we don't do that, the world misses out. Our church misses out. Our city misses out. And so confession of the lists that we hold, of the judgments that so quickly can jump up in our mind and story is the way to crush condemnation. And so confession is actually a really easy thing. It's challenging, it's costly, but it's very simple. It's actually something we're going to all do together in just a moment. When you came in, there was a rock on your seat. Some of you were like, I thought this chair was really uncomfortable. No, it's because there was a rock there. And I want to invite you to grab that rock and grab a pen. And during this next song, as we worship and sing together, I want you to come up with that rock and place it at the altar as, a, as an act of corporate confession to say we, we don't get it all right all the time, but we want to step towards this way of Jesus. And so maybe on that rock, there's a whole, if you're honest, you don't put your name on it, there's a whole people group that you've written off. Maybe it's not a whole people group. Maybe it's just one person. Maybe it's your ex. Look, legally, you don't have to hang out with them, but do you love them? Like, how do you talk about them with your kids? Maybe it's your former pastor that hurt you. Maybe it's a whole group that goes by a name that you've written off and said they don't, they're not in all people. And I want to challenge you. This will not be comfortable. <laughs> I know that. And I want to get down and write my own. But who, who are the people that are the exception to you? Would you write that on this rock and bring it up and drop it at the altar? of the one who allowed himself to be crucified with his arms spread open wide, saying, yeah, all people, all people, even you, even you. And in doing so, may our confession crush whatever condemnation still lives in our soul. So let's do some work together, church. Let me pray for us.
Heavenly Father, the entire story of the scriptures, the story of your life, Jesus, was that you came to end the condemnation we put on ourselves and that we put on others. So God, would you, by your spirit, give us the courage to identify a name or a group or even a type of person that we would exclude from all people. And as we bring it up and we drop it at the cross, with the sound of rocks hitting the floor, be an anthem of joy that rises to your ears as your people, as we take a step towards becoming who I believe you dream for us to become. So Jesus, thank you that you call us, that you invite us, that you see us, that you don't exclude us, that you want to change and transform us from the inside out. We need it. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.